You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I'm so torn. I want to open today's show talking about someone I hate. But God knows there's enough hate in the world, and I don't want to add to the sum total. But forgive me, I have got to get this off my chest. I fucking hate Melania Trump. I'm not alone in loathing Donald Trump's third wife. She's married to a misogynist, after all. Odds are good her husband hates her, too. But there are some folks on the left who not only don't hate her, they view her as some sort of sympathetic figure. The pretty princess in the tower, locked up by the orange ogre with the bad comb over, a princess desperately blinking out distress signals during swearing-in ceremonies and inaugural balls. I think we can credit that undeservedly charitable view of our new first lady to our propensity as humans, as a species, to think that the insides of pretty people match the outsides of pretty people. And that may be true sometimes, but only randomly and everyone always beware of confirmation bias. And you know what? It's definitely not true in this case. Mrs. Trump, Melania Trump, is as ugly on the inside as she is pretty on the outside. She is a birther. Pretty Melania went on TV to push the same racist conspiracy theories about Barack Obama that her husband did. She's an immigrant who doesn't give a shit about the plight of other immigrants. She's famously a plagiarist, and she's brought ruinous lawsuits against journalists and bloggers, accusing them, amongst other things, of potentially interfering with her ability to profit off her role as first lady. I don't know if you can impeach a first lady or how that would work, but I do know that we would have found out pretty fucking fast if Michelle Obama had said the same during her husband's presidency. I had plenty of reasons to hate Melania before reading this by Kira Lerner at Think Progress. First Lady Melania Trump paid a visit to Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, where she called on the power of nature to heal seriously ill children. As her husband plans to repeal the Affordable Care Act, a move that could strip health care coverage from up to 13 million children, Melania Trump talked with patients and their families about how the gift of nature and the beauties of the outdoors can improve their health. You know what else improves the health of children? Medical care. And you know what makes it possible for children in the United States to access medical care? Not citizenship or residency or human decency. No, health insurance makes it possible for children to access medical care around here. Zooming back to a pre-Obamacare study, in 2009, Harvard University found that 45,000 Americans died annually because they lacked health care coverage. That's 15 9-11s every year. That number included, of course, thousands of children, children dying every year for lack of access to health care. Kids like Diamante Driver, who was a 12-year-old boy who died in 2007 because his family didn't have health insurance. The headlines read, toothache leads to boy's death, but it was really the lack of access to medical care that killed Diamante. Fewer kids are dying these days thanks to Obamacare, but Donald Trump and the GOP Congress are going to fix that. But even if it worked the way Melania Trump would like us to believe it does, even if nature and the outdoors were all it took to save Diamante's life or cure pediatric cancers, Melania might want to have a word with her loathsome husband about his environmental agenda. Her husband, while she's touting the benefits of the great outdoors, the health benefits of the great outdoors, 
Her husband plans to gut the Environmental Protection Agency. Her husband has already signed executive orders rolling back clean air and water regulations. Her husband scrapped a rule that prevented coal companies from dumping toxic wastes into rivers and streams. So kids in coal country might not want to go swimming. Kids all over the country are going to have to avoid beaches and lakes and rivers too since Trump is zeroing out water quality testing. Because raw sewage and water can't hurt you kids if you don't know it's there. Her husband is also rolling back fuel economy standards, food safety standards, rules against pumping dangerous gases into the air like methane and sulfur, and scrapping good neighbor rules that regulate pollutants that float from one state to another. So, yeah, if you think the great outdoors can take the place of healthcare, you should be doing everything you can to protect the environment. And if you think we can't afford to protect the environment, you should be doing everything you can to make sure all people have access to health care, that everyone has health insurance. Because children who drink polluted water and breathe polluted air and swim in polluted rivers are going to require more health care. But you know what? It's really not one or the other. We can have clean air and water and access to health care too. But we're not going to have either, thanks to loathsome Melania Trump's loathsome husband. All right, coming up on this week's show, on the micro and the magnum, the wonderful Lindsay Doe from Sexplanations joins us. Also, plenty of your questions, lots of my answers, all coming up. Hi, Dan. I'm a bi lady in my early 40s. I got divorced about a year and a half ago, and I'm just now starting to get back out there and date and have sex again. And I pretty much like having sex with people who I have a basic connection with, who I feel some affinity for and get on well with. And I'm definitely not into um, one-night stands or sex with random people who I don't know at all. And I find myself in a situation that is familiar to me that I remember from the last time I was single, which was way back in my 20s. And it's that pretty much as soon as I start having sex with someone, I feel like pretty soon after that, like I'm falling for them. I feel like I fall in love really easily, even when that's not what I set out to do. And that's not what I want right now. I don't want a really deep, intimate, long-term relationship right now, but I find that when I start having sex with someone, I start imagining maybe I could have a future with them, or is this boyfriend or girlfriend material, and and I have started to think that maybe I'm just not cut out for casual sex, because up until now, I just mostly have not been able to pull it off, but I'm a very sexual person. I love having sex I want to have an active and thriving sex life. Sex is wonderful. I want to casually date and have casual sex, but I'm just finding it really hard to maintain that casual approach and to keep the distance that that involves. I fall in love too easily. Do you have any advice for me that how I can maintain the casual part of casual dating and casual sex and not fall in love so easily? I know it's possible to reconcile these seemingly contradictory impulses that you begin to imagine yourself having a future with someone that you're having sex with and a desire to have casual sex with someone because I have that exact same – I don't want to call it a problem. I have that exact same superpower. I have had casual sex before I met my husband. I could hook up with somebody, although we didn't call them hookups then. We called it – tricking. I could meet somebody and fuck them that night, but 
I couldn't have sex with somebody. I couldn't hook up with somebody if I didn't on some level think this person could be my boyfriend. If I couldn't imagine a future with this person, even if it was someone I had just met and only been talking to for a couple of hours, I kind of needed for that person to be someone I might think seriously about wanting to date or wanting to be with before I could take my pants off in the presence of this person. The way you reconcile these seemingly contradictory impulses, this propensity toward imagining a future with someone that you're fucking or about to fuck and your desire to keep it casual, to have casual sex, is for your non-reptile brain, the bigger, stronger, more rational part of your brain to come in on top of that and remind you that this urge, imagining a future with them, bonding with them, all good, all fine, but you know nothing about this person. You know very little about this person yet. And your imagination is filling in all sorts of gaps that makes them seem like potential terrific long-term partner. And they're going to reveal themselves to you over time if you continue to fuck them. You will learn whether or not they are a potential long-term partner. So you can bask in that good feeling like, oh, potential boyfriend or potential girlfriend. Oh, oh, love, love, love. I feel a bond. I feel a bond. I feel potential. But you have to remind yourself that it is potential that you're feeling, not actual love, not actual this is a relationship or could be a relationship, but you are sensing potential for a relationship if all the ducks continue to line up in a row, if everything falls into place. But at the outset, at the start, nothing much has fallen into place except an initial attraction and an initial good feeling about that person that you are then spinning out into a relationship, that imagined future. And it's fun to imagine that future. And it puts you in a mindset where if everything does fall into place, you will have a future with this person. But everything has not yet fallen into place. So enjoy the feeling. Don't view it as a problem. View it as a kind of superpower. Wallow in it while keeping your wits about you and being sensible about the fact that you actually don't know this person well and something may emerge that disqualifies them from that imagined future. And you will then move on to imagine a future with someone else. Enjoy. Hi, Dan. This is Ben in Denver. I'm a non-binary person who presents as male. Um, I've gotten really good at online dating in the last 10 years. Um, I think I mentioned I'm 29. And I'm wondering, I have this friend who comes over and hangs out at group stuff sometimes. And she knows I'm polyamorous, but we haven't ever talked about being interested in each other. But I kind of have a little crush on her. But I just have no idea how to bring it up to her and not be super awkward about it. Be awkward. Embrace awkward. It is awkward. There's no avoiding the awkwardness. So just if you're more comfortable with online communication, send her an email that says, hey, I mostly date through apps or date online. And so I'm reaching out to you online just to say, I'm kind of attracted to you. And I'd like to ask you out on a date date if you'd be interested. And I realize that if you're not up for this, or you're not attracted to me in the same way that this is going to screw up our friendship for a little bit. It's going to make it a little awkward, but we can burn through the awkwardness with some effort. If indeed you aren't interested in me the same way I might be interested in you and we can return to the friendship that we had once the awkwardness burns off. So what do you say? That's all you got to do. Embrace the awkward, run toward the awkward. There's no avoiding awkward. Awkward can only be plowed through, not soared above. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old female living in the Pacific Northwest. 
I have a question about what I should do with my ex-sugar daddy from college. He still tries to get in touch with me despite me clearly telling him that I would appreciate him not to text me. In college, he paid he paid me to send dirty pics and um, give him hand jobs in hotel rooms. Uh, we always had a friendly demeanor when this was going on, and that money actually helped me stay in college uh, while still being able to do my extracurriculars. I'm the first woman to have graduated in my family with a four-year degree and then a master's. I'm now employed at a huge company, and the money that was provided by this guy helped me achieve all of that. So I feel like I owe him in some way, but. Um, when it came time to say goodbye, once I was on my own two feet, he took it really well. I said that I didn't want to have contact and he understood um, and things were great from there. And I was glad to put it behind me because although the money helped, it was still a rough situation being that it was a huge secret and uh, illegal. Um, I was able to tell my long-term partner about the ordeal and he's been amazing and loving and supportive. But for about a year now, um, my ex sugar daddy, he'll text me every few months or so asking how I'm doing, telling me that he's proud of me and asking if I still wanted to say hi sometimes. So far, I haven't responded to any of his texts. Um, my partner says that answering the text is an invite to keep the conversation going, which I agree to. Um, normally, I'd tell this guy to piss off, but I really want to maintain a friendly demeanor. And I'm afraid that if I use more stern language with him, that he'll do something unsavory. He's a married man in his late 70s with a huge company attached to his name, and I would die of embarrassment if my name and his ever got tied up together. So what's the best way to communicate to him to quit reaching out to me? I want to keep it lighthearted but stern enough so he stops. Should I just block the number and hope he just forgets about me? Please help, Dan. The unspoken concern here is if you aren't friendly with him, if he gets angry at you for not responding to his texts, for not chit-chatting with him about how happy you are, about how proud he is of where you're at now, a place that he helped you to get to, although you describe his help as an ordeal, he might retaliate against you. And the obvious mode of retaliation would be to take all the pictures that you sent him over the years that you were in this sugar daddy, sugar baby relationship, and release them into the wilds of the internet or send them to everyone at the company that you're currently at. That is, I think, the underlying simmering anxiety here. You know him better than I do, of course. You had this these interactions with him for many years. Do you think he's capable of that? Are there revenge porn statutes in the states where you live and where he lives? If this got out, would it be as bad for him as it would be for you? Do you have emails and texts from him that could be damaging? Is this a mad situation, mutual assured destruction? He has these things about you and these images of you. You have what on him? I think you have to take all that into consideration when you decide what to do about reaching out to him. I also think you have to take into consideration late 70s. You told him that you would prefer not to be in contact anymore for both of you to get on with your lives and you expressed gratitude for the help that he gave you and hopefully he expressed gratitude for the hand jobs you gave him. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he's tiptoeing into dementia and forgetfulness in his late 70s and he doesn't recall those conversations. I think you should send him one last text telling him, reminding him that you need to get on with your life, maybe shifting some of the blame 
Tell him a little white lie that it upsets your partner when you get texts from him because of your relationship. He doesn't need to know that your current partner is fine with it. You don't have to say your current partner is beating the shit out of you or freaking out or throwing things. Just that it upsets your partner. And so you're asking him as a friend, as an old friend with some history, if he can refrain from contacting you in the future out of respect for where you are now and the relationship that you're in now and wish him well one last time and then block him. And your call, I think, for other people out there considering getting into sugar baby, sugar daddy relationships stands as sort of a warning that these things can follow you. And if you're in a position where this kind of commodified relationship could harm you in the future or the scripts and scraps of it, the remnants, the emails, the texts, the photographs you shared, if those things were made public by an angry, bitter, entitled ex-sugar daddy it's something to take into consideration when you're deciding whether or not to enter into this kind of commodified relationship in the first place. Hey, Dan, young man from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I just had a quick question for you. I've been seeing this wonderful lady for the last six months, and we kind of broke up a couple of days ago. And... um she has three wonderful children that, you know, I would like to still be friends with. And I would also like to continue to be friends with her. But I was just wondering if you have any advice on how to sort of walk this tightrope of friendship without misleading anybody or making things more complicated. I just don't want to, um, you know, hurt the kids or hurt her or myself in the process by doing something that I would that is unfeasible at the time. Maybe we should take some time off before we try this friend thing or not. I'm not really sure. I, I, I think we're both old enough to be mature about it, but I, I just was wondering if you think it's wise or if you could give me, give us some advice on how to proceed. You say you're interested in pursuing a friendship primarily and first and foremost with this woman's kids and also with this woman you don't say whether she's interested in being your friend or you being friendly or a friend of her children. That matters not just as much as your feelings. That matters a whole hell of a lot more than your feelings. So I would encourage you to ask her how she feels. So you were only dating this woman for six months. You weren't with this woman for six years. In six months, Perhaps to some limited extent, you were a part of the lives of her children as their mother's boyfriend, but I can't imagine you were so intimate and so folded into their lives that you disappearing after six months, although they may miss you, is really going to be experienced as trauma or deprivation. So my advice to you would be to back the fuck off, to not communicate with her children or communicate with her about her children, just to leave the ball in her court and say, the relationship didn't work out. Hopefully we can be friends in the future after that cooling off period that everyone needs. You kind of need to be away from people you've just ended a romantic or sexual relationship with for a while before you can establish that friendship. And if that happens in the future, if you two circle back and become friends and you will re-enter her children's lives without having to force it. So, dude, just back the fuck off and let it play out. Hi, Dan. Um, I'd be so thankful if I could get your advice on something that's really been on my mind. Uh, I've been going in circles, so I'm hoping you can help me out. 
I am a straight, single woman living in Canada. I'm in my mid-30s. And I decided a few months ago to conceive through artificial insemination. I have a known donor who is an absolute blessing in my life. He's amazing. He's one of my closest friends. Um, if it's in any way relevant to your answer, he lives in the States, so he's not in the same city. And he's gay, so we've never had a relationship. Um, well, not a romantic relationship. Uh, so I told the people that I'm closest to, like my family, my best friends, about my decision. And they've been so supportive and wonderful. And um, I have zero doubts about what I'm about to do. Everything is positive in that respect. It's part of a medical procedure. I've had to visit a psychologist. And her job was just to ensure that I really thought through all the different angles and aspects of my decision. Um, obviously, I had. But she did have one interesting piece of advice, which was, to really be careful who I tell, uh, who I tell, because I want to avoid this sort of earth shattering moment for my child one day in the future uh, when he or she realizes that every adult in his life knew who the father was or knew the circumstances of his of the conception. And, you know, I don't really know yet who I'm going to tell and uh, at what age I'm going to tell the child. So it's a little tricky and I totally understand her piece of advice. I guess my question to you is, if I'm not going to tell people uh, the whole truth, then what do I tell them? Because God willing, I'm going to be pregnant very soon and showing very soon. And the truth is that I'm a private person and I'm not in any way ashamed of my decision. I'm really so excited, but it's a very private decision. And in my experience, when I have told people, the questions that I get, the follow-ups tend to be really invasive. Like they ask me about his sperm and my eggs and my ovarian reserves and who's the donor. And the questions are, you know, they, they can get pretty detailed and obviously my closest friends and family will know, or will be able to figure it out anyway, pretty quickly, but I don't really know what to tell my acquaintances and the colleagues at work because I mean, let's be honest, it's a pretty juicy piece of information. It's pretty juicy gossip for work. And I know it's going to go around and I really have, no interest in being the subject of conversation. So how do you think I can minimize that? I mean, should I make up a boyfriend? Should I insinuate I had a one-night stand? I'm not sure that's realistic because it's really unlike me. And also, I don't really want to imply the kid is a mistake. Um, should I say with my ex? Should I say with anonymous donor? I, I don't really know what to say because obviously one day if I walk into work, and I tell people I'm pregnant and I'm showing, they're going to say, oh, we didn't even know you had a boyfriend. And then I I don't really know where to go from there. So, Dan, what do you think I should do? How do you think I should answer the pretty basic questions that are inevitably, inevitably going to come my way? How do I shut down the acquisition without seeming rude or withdrawn? Because this really is a very happy decision. I just don't know how to handle it. Between these two options, which is likelier to get you gossiped about? You had a one-night stand and you knocked up and you decided to keep the baby. Or in your 30s, you decided you were ready to be a parent and you were no longer going to wait around for some man to come along. And you went with a known donor, an old friend. And your kid is going to know their biological dad. Old friend lives in the States. I would go with the truth. Trying to keep track of who you've told which story trying to keep your casual acquaintances away from your good friends and your family who may let slip the real reason. And then that's really going to be the cause of gossip because it's going to look like you're hiding something and you have nothing to hide and you have nothing to be ashamed of. This is your route to parenthood. You asked an old friend to donate 
semen, sperm, and together you conceived. And if someone asks you a question about exactly how that conception went down, whether your old friend fucked you or whether it was a test tube thing or some sort of artificial insemination technique, you can just smile and say that I'm not really comfortable talking about. Then they're going to assume that he fucked you, but you can say, I don't really want to talk about that. The really important thing is that I'm pregnant and bringing this child into the world and that's a wonderful thing and everybody involved, including the known donor, is ecstatic about it. Period. The end. And congratulations. Congratulations from all of us here at the Savage Lovecast on your pregnancy and uh, the coming hopefully healthy birth of your child. Hi, Dan. My name is Greg. I'm a 54-year-old gay guy in L.A. And I grew up in the late 70s. We're about the same age, I think. Oh, thank you for being our spokesmodel and my personal hero. I'm just wondering about the word faggot and fag and calling myself a fag, calling other people fags. You know, when I was growing up, it was devastating to hear that. And now I'm kind of taking it back. I consider it kind of our N-word where it's okay for me to say it, but really not okay for you to say it unless you do it appropriately, which is hard for you to know because I'm giving you mixed messages. I don't know. I am using it. I use it a lot. I'm, I'm trying to own it and take about take away the negative connotations to the word. But I also feel like sometimes when I hear people use it inappropriately, I'm sending a mixed message and making that okay too. Um, but what I'm trying to do is say it first, like you do. I, I hear you using it a lot and I need you to help me use my words to explain to people why I'm using it and how we're going to take it back and why it's okay. So help me, Dan. Tell me how to explain this to people and take that power away from that word. So last weekend, I was at a friend's birthday party, turning, I think, 31 or 32 years old, and there was a cake for him that said, happy birthday, faggot. It actually said, happy birthday, faggot, homo, queer, ass bandit. And those words, those insults, those slurs, when he was 15 years old, would have devastated him, would have made him cry. But at 31, they had him howling with laughter. And the people who decorated that cake weren't faggots. They were dykes, but they weren't faggots. And they used the word. They wrote it on a cake. And everybody loved it. Everybody thought it was hilarious. And everybody sat down and had a slice of faggot cake. It was great. And so context matters. And intent matters. 25 years ago, when I launched Savage Love, my sex advice column, and my friend who just turned 31 was just six fucking years old, every letter in the column began with a salutation. Every letter began with, hey, faggot. And that was the case for 10 years. And I really loved that. Hey, faggot. And we picked that because it kind of, for my Midwestern sensibilities and Midwestern accents, hey, faggot, sounded like Dear Abby, that big flat A, getting all the emphasis. And it grew out of, in the early 90s, the Queer Nation movement. Queer Nation came along and a lot of people thought queer was a slur a lot. Some people still do. But they were going to take that word back. We were going to use it to describe ourselves. Queer, faggot, dyke, sissy. If we use these words and we strip them of their power to wound us because we use them affectionately and appropriately, then they wouldn't be hate terms anymore. And I thought when I launched Savage Love and invited straight people, my straight readers, to address me as, hey, faggot, that I was carrying that ball the last 10 yards. There, a football metaphor. The last 10 yards. 
because if the word isn't a hate word anymore, then you have to let people who aren't faggots use it. And the column really demonstrated that. You know, some people would write, hey, faggot, I hate you and you suck and you're a gay and a pervert and gross and you put your dick in other men's bums and you're disgusting and going to hell. And it was clear when they used faggot, they were using it as an insult. And then other people would write into Savage Love and say, hey, faggot, I love you. I love your column. Uh, Pro-gay, pro-everything. Can I have some advice, please? And it was clear when they used it that there was no hate when they said, hey, faggot. There was affection. Even though both letter writers were straight, one using it hatefully, one using it affectionately, and it demonstrated that it's intent that makes a word hateful. But also, the context mattered. There was an in-group there, even though the in-group at Savage Love included lots of straight people and lots of queer people, it was still in-group. People understood how the word was being used and why it was being used, and it was being used at my invitation. The problem that we encounter when well-intentioned straight people hear us using faggot and feel like they should be able to use it too and use it in the same affectionate way is it might be overheard by someone who's outgroup at that moment, who doesn't know them, who doesn't know their hearts, who isn't familiar with their intent and may be wounded by it or made to feel afraid by its usage or traumatized or triggered or whatever by its usage in that moment by that person who means no ill intent, who may be a straight person who's in group with their queer friends and uses it with them and uses it in the right way and blah, blah, blah. So it's more complicated than just we reclaimed it. We made it not a hate word anymore when we use it. Therefore, everyone can use it now because you never know who is going to hear you use it, straight person, or misconstrue it when you use it, not understand how you're using it, not understand or not able to grok as the kids stopped saying as soon as they heard me saying it, your intent Intent matters again and context matters and it's the context that makes other people comfortable or uncomfortable and people have to know the context to be comfortable. So it's more complicated. Obviously, it's complicated. We're talking about for 10 minutes. It's more complicated than just we can all use this word now. Everyone can use this word now. It is our N-word, although I don't think it is as toxic as the N-word. It is kind of plays the same role in in-group affectionate banter in among gay men as the N-word plays in African-American friend groups. So I would encourage you to use it among your queer friends, among your gay friends appropriately. And if there are straight people in your group, there are straight people who hear you using it, who have questions about it, or they feel licensed to use it themselves, that you have a conversation with them about it so that they understand that with you it's fine, but not with you in line at a movie theater where somebody might think you're straight, the both of you, not When you're not there, not just generally and loudly and wherever, because they're going to hurt other gay people who may not understand how it's being used, why it's being used, who may feel threatened hearing it used, who may be 12 years old and not out yet, not gay identified yet. And it may delay their coming out or their self-acceptance if they hear that word thrown around and they misunderstand how it's being thrown around and by whom it's being thrown around. So it's a complicated situation. And it's a powerful word, and we have to be thoughtful about where and how we use it. Hey, Dan. I am a 29-year-old straight but not narrow girl living in Washington, D.C., and I recently got into online dating after being in a relationship for a few years and had a few great dates with a guy, Um, and after our fourth date or so, we were at my place. And it was really hot and heavy, and we have so 
so much physical attraction for one another and he is unable to get aroused. Um, at different points, you know, I felt him erect, but we just were not able to get there. And I thought that I had handled it in the best way possible. And I said, you know, no big deal. We'll figure it out. Um, but I guess my biggest issue is that since then, he is what I guess some people may refer to as ghosting. Um, he has not texted me back. And it's really bizarre because we left things so well. And yeah, I'm just trying to figure out what happened here. I'm not heartbroken or anything if I don't see him again. But A, is there an ideal response that a woman or a man can tell someone who isn't able to become erect? And if I see him again, what should I say? I feel like I need closure in this area. And yeah, I'm just having a really difficult time understanding what I could have done or maybe I didn't do anything at all. If you're having a hard time achieving closure, finding closure, just tell yourself that maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe his dick didn't get hard and he wasn't that into you and he left. And it's not about how you reacted. It's not necessarily that he's struggling with shame, although it could be that. Maybe you had the wrong reaction. Maybe he just felt that you had the wrong reaction. Maybe he's so ashamed of himself and embarrassed that he just can't look you in the thighs ever again. Or maybe... You guys were dating, you went on a couple of dates, you messed around that first time, and it didn't work for him. Maybe he didn't like the taste of your spit. Maybe chemically, when you guys came together, it just didn't work for him, and his erection did not happen for that reason. And he doesn't want to see you again. It could be as simple as that. And absent some other explanation, I would go with the simple explanation. It wasn't working for him, and so it ain't happening. Go find somebody who's into you, and who gets hard when they're naked around you. Hi, Dan. I'm calling to get some advice about porn, specifically about talking to kids about porn and maybe more specifically how to talk to younger kids about porn. I have two kids, ages seven and five, and I should probably preface this question by saying that we are pretty matter-of-fact about bodies in our house. We've taught our kids correct anatomical terms. We've taught them about good touch, bad touch, that the private parts are for them privately. Um, but they, my kids have seen my husband and me sort of getting ready in the morning. We're not prudish. We don't flaunt being naked, but um, we don't rush to cover up while we're getting ready in the morning. So our kids have seen naked bodies. So recently, my uh, son, who's seven, drew a comic book at school and he came home and he was showing it to me. And he got to these few frames where he'd drawn uh, a stick figure and he said and then he got all giggly and he said this is a woman taking a shower and this man is watching her so I sort of talked to him about consent and it's not okay to watch other people naked if they don't want to uh, but then about a week later I read an article that said that kids are first exposed to porn by age seven and I thought oh my gosh I'm not ready for this so I looked up advice on parenting advice sites. And most of the advice says, tell kids that porn is bad, that it's unhealthy, that it's wrong, that they should never look at it. And I don't really believe that in the context of a healthy adult relationship or sexuality. I think porn consumption, ethically produced porn is great and can be completely part of a healthy sexuality. However, I do not think that's part of it for a seven-year-old. 
but I'm really kind of at a loss about how to go about addressing this with my seven-year-old. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Lindsay Doe. She's a clinical sexologist and host of the wildly popular and truly wonderful YouTube channel, Sexplanations. Hey, Dr. Doe, how you doing? Hi, great. Thank you for such a beautiful introduction. I can't tell you how much I love your YouTube videos and love not just the content, but also the concept. It is kind of Aww. it is kind of guerrilla sex ed that you're doing, and I have such respect for that. <laughs> Thank you. You know, the, the sex that the kids get in schools is so terrible and incomplete. And as I wrote in American Savage, it's sex dread, not sex ed, which is not an, an original observation of mine. I'm just amplifying it, that what kids are taught is to fear sex. I watched one of your videos where you talked about your own daughters going into sex ed and being told that they're not going to learn anything about masturbation, pornography, or what, and what was the third thing? Contraception. That's crazy. The three things I that know, kids right? are most likely to have questions about, the three things that that they probably need to have a discourse about, particularly pornography and the way it can shape someone's expectations around sex, their fears about sex, and, and, and contraception, ah, ah, and masturbation. How can you not cover masturbation, which is most of the sex an adolescent is going to have? Right, exactly. I'm glad we feel similarly on this. <laughs> so what inspired you to, to, to start your Sexplanations channel besides terrible sex ed? Yeah, the ter- well, the terrible sex ed was part of it. I was teaching at a university and... Um, they were about to shut down the human sexuality class and having worked there for almost a decade and seeing how much the education impacted the students, I went to the producer of Sexplanations and said, hey, we need to figure out another way for them to have access to this information because they were going to remove it from campus. Another reason, too, um, I was getting ready to adopt my daughter and I, I wanted to, you know, to do something fun that would allow me to be a mom at the same time. And to have a creative outlet, an outlet for all your your awesome wisdom. Aww, yeah. Wouldn't want it's that been all really fun. bottled up at home. Uh, rattle off, for, if you will, for, for listeners who uh, haven't yet landed on this Explanations YouTube channel, some of the topics you've covered. Oh, gosh. The effects of porn, masturbation. Um, we've talked to, to people in the sex work industry. Um, we've done an episode on what we think the Disney princess sex lives would be like. <laughs> that was one, that was one of my favorites. Disney princesses, their sex lives are awesome. When are we going to get uh, an episode about Aladdin's sex life? I know a lot of gay men who are particularly obsessed with Aladdin. Ooh, I'll have to talk with John Cozart, the person who, uh, guest hosted with me. We, we did, um, on that set talk about how interesting it would be to do the sex lives of Disney villains. Um, but yeah, Aladdin, what do you think his sex life would be like? Well, I can tell you what I hope his sex life would be like. And I can tell you what it would be like <laughs> if he was having sex with me and was a three-dimensional human being and not a cartoon. <laughs> but that would be giving away too much. And the show is not about me or my sex life. <laughs> One more question about about the concept. You know, I love Gorilla Sex Ed. There's a lot of really good sex ed out there on YouTube. And yours is right up there at the top, in my opinion. The the mm-hmm. one problem, though, is a lot of kids think they know everything about sex. And some kids have been mm-hmm. convinced that if they go in search of information, that they're dirty sex perverts and that's bad, that it's better to be ignorant. It's better to let things happen naturally, better to get carried away right. than to premeditate. 
And so a sex ed curricula that you have to opt into, which is kind of what guerrilla sex ed online is all about, is not going to scoop up those kids who most need it. How do we reach them? I hope it does, though. I hope it's like the secret way that they can be curious and investigate without others knowing that they're doing it. At least that's my hope. Do you get a lot of feedback? I do get a lot of feedback in the comments or in private messages. People will let me know that they come from very conservative backgrounds or they experience a lot of uh, shame around sexuality or that they're very judgmental toward people who are sexually progressive or open about it and that they kind of approach sexplanations in this secretive manner and just decided that they were going to do it and not let anyone know. And then as a result of that behavior, they really developed a different mentality about it. And now they're super supportive of the channel and the work, which is, you know, those are my favorite stories. So let's tackle this question. Mom, two kids, age seven and five. And the kid sounds like the kid drew a little stick figure drawing of something relatively innocuous, not quite porny. And mom went online, which everyone should do, go online so you can have a panic attack about the whatever it is that you're thinking about, <laughs> and learned, and I am dubious about this, that kids' first exposure to online pornography comes at age seven. I have my doubts, but what should she say to her seven-year-old about the potentially pornographic image he drew of a stick figure watching a stick figure take a shower? Well, first, I want to applaud her for being willing to talk with her kiddos. Um, and then just understanding that the ideas around pornography do not all have to be negative or unhealthy, that there is a space for porn to be a useful tool in romantic partnerships or, you know, individually. Um, and so go her. But also, I think in talking to the kiddo, what she gets to say is, where did you learn about this? Or what do you think about this? Or how how does the drawing change in these circumstances? And really letting the the kiddo um, lead and learn from the child, right? Like my message on everything is to stay curious. And I think that that's where we get the growth that we need to have a healthy society is when we don't act like we know everything. I've often suggested on the show that parents need to have a dialogue with their kids about porn, as awkward as that might be, because the kids are going to see it. And you need to kind of get in between them and the porn. I, I frequently talk about, you know, my son <laughs> b- before porn, when he was just watching TV, watching, you know, his Disney shows when he was four and five and six years old. And I would sometimes stand there and say, are you having fun? And he would say, yeah. And I'd say, well, actually, not really. You're watching other people have fun. It's kind of vicarious fun, but it's not fun you're having. You're mm-hmm. witnessing packaged fun, other people's fun, other people having fun and you're kind of enjoying their fun. And just by being a downer like that at those moments, it got it into his head that, you know, TV is fake fun. That's what he called TV for a long time. He called it fake fun, which was, I I, I thought, you know, I gave myself a little parenting gold star at that moment. Not because Yeah, cut, that's brilliant of you, Dan. Not because we cut him off from TV, but we just put something in his head that helped him see TV for what it was. And we had similar conversations when he, you know, got to be uh, – you know, of the age where it was appropriate, uh, similar conversations about pornography, just to get in between your kid and the porn that they're going to view. So they're going to be critical about it and thoughtful about it. My kid became very thoughtful about how much TV he was watching and why he was watching it and what he was watching. And hopefully the same thing uh, applied with porn. And I think those are important conversations for kids to have. But uh, circling back to my original point, do you Do you think that – is that accurate that kids' first exposure to pornography typically comes at age seven on average? Because that would mean that there are kids whose first exposure to pornography comes in utero if you're going to average it out. 
Because there's some kids who aren't going to see porn until they're 15 or 16. And if the average is seven, then some kids saw it two years before they were born. Ah, that's a great way of looking at it. It just seems like anti-porn scaremongering to me. Well, so what I've heard is around age nine. And I think that average is looking at the percentages of each age group. So it's not the, what is that called? The median or mode. But it's saying that if we have people starting as early as five, six, seven, and then the bulk of them are seeing it, say 11, 12, yeah, then you'll get that average. I, I do think that it's really early and I you know, cringe at the thought of my kiddos being sent material that they don't consent to. But I do think that it's a good place to have conversations about bodies and um, what people are doing with their bodies and what they're learning from that or taking away from it. And what porn puts forward, what porn normalizes or centers isn't necessarily what sex is with a partner. That porn is performance, porn is kabuki, porn is action movie versions of sex. And action movies don't look like life in the same way that porn, for most people, does not look like the sex that they're having as an adult with a partner that they're fond of. Right, right. And I think you need to say that to your kids. And I I think seven is too young for a kid to hear that. You don't want to pique a kid's interest in pornography. You know, your kid, maybe your kid saw a little bit of porn, uh, was exposed to it somehow. And I think if you go nuclear on your kid, it's going to make porn seem fascinating and something that drives Mm. parents around the bend. So you're going to want to be a little bit sort of even handed and calm about it. You know, fact of life, porn exists. It's for adults. Kids don't understand it. There's really no reason for you to be viewing it at this time of your life. And some people never view it. Some people don't care for it. But. I, you know, you don't want to freak out. You don't want to shit your pants, mom, because there's nothing I think a seven <laughs> or eight year old enjoys more than seeing mom and dad have a heart attack about something. And you don't want to make it a button they can press to, to so they can see your head fall off. Right. Absolutely. Dr. Doe, can you stick around for a couple more questions? Yes. Hi, Dan. I am a 23 year old queer woman um, in New England. I had a question. So my boyfriend and I just moved in together recently. We've been together over a year now. And we like to spend most of our time together naked. It's just more comfortable. It's, you know, it's great. We're very comfortable with one another. So we were talking kind of jokingly about the future and having children and having a nudist household. And I couldn't find anything online other than just some op-ed pieces on if this is actually harmful to children or not. Um, For me, I mean, I was raised by a same-sex lesbian couple. And they were, you know, frequently topless, were not ashamed of their bodies. But once my younger brother came around and got a little bit older, that kind of fell by the wayside. So I also don't know if there's like a gendered component to this, like if opposite sex children like shouldn't see their you know, parents naked or whatever. I was just curious if there's any professional opinion on this because I couldn't really find anything online. So... Dr. Doe, I can't think of anything that I am more grateful to my parents for than not raising me in a nudist household. (laughs) But that's just my hang-ups about the human body. I think this person makes a great point when they're saying that it's about comfortability and that their relationship, the two people in it, have a dynamic where they feel comfortable being nude together. And so I think when the question comes up about children then you get to check in with those kids at whatever age and say, does this make you feel comfortable? And if it doesn't, let's change how the family wears or doesn't wear clothing. So ask the kids. That's your recommendation. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I think too, to, to pay attention to culture, because I think that culture is what's going to send those messages about right and wrong and shame. And we don't want those kids going into social situations where they aren't prepared to answer questions about their home lifestyle and, and do so without feeling like they have to defend themselves. I think you can have a nudist home where the people in that dynamic understand the choices that they're making and they consent to that. And then, you know, they get that other families do things differently. But if at any time that changes and the kids say, hey, you know, I don't want to see your breasts anymore or whatever language they're able to use at that time, then everything needs to be renegotiated. Hey, Dan, I'm a 29-year-old single woman living in the far north. And um, I'm just calling because I've had a issue that's brand new for me. My husband and I have been married for three years. We've been together for eight, and we've had an awesome sex life the whole time. Um, this last summer, I had a whole bunch of family problems and just a bunch of stuff come up for me, and it kind of threw me into a pretty big depression um, for the whole summer. And um, by the end of the summer, with the help of my husband, I finally started to get help. I'm seeing a really wonderful psychologist, and she put me on an antidepressant. And then I started noticing that I didn't want to have sex anymore. And last night, I tried to masturbate and tried to get myself off, and I couldn't come, and I couldn't come. And I looked up this morning, and sure enough, one of the side effects of my antidepressant is not being able to orgasm. Um, as a long-time listen, listener to your show, I know how important sex is to a marriage and to a relationship. So I'm just wondering, as a GGG wife and as someone who likes to get her own rocks off, what should I do? Um, I really like how this antidepressant has been making me feel in every other way, but I also want to have that connection with my husband and make sure he's getting off. So yeah, just any advice that you have for me and what I should do uh, with this issue. I would really appreciate it. I'm always shocked when people call in who somehow missed the memo over the last 15 or 20 years that a lot of antidepressants crater people's libidos and interfere with their ability to climax. Mm -hmm. And I'm shocked that her, you know, this shrink she's working with that she seems to like so much didn't clue her in to that, about that, didn't mention it. That's, I think, malpractice practically. Not malpractice, probably doesn't rise to level malpractice, but it's not best practices, I don't think, to fail to warn someone that these meds could crater their libido. Well, you and I are very sex positive people, and I think that we are able to have those conversations with others. But I, I tend to see that in the medical field where there isn't that push for sex positivity, that they overlook that, that their patient's sex life is secondary to their patient's uh, psychological functioning. And so it's often not mentioned. I work with a lot of people who will come and say, oh my gosh, this is a side effect. What do I do? And my response to them is you get to be the the beacon who speaks to your professional and explains to them that this is a side effect of your medication and you need to look at alternatives. Yeah, you need to look at alternatives. You also need to give people a heads up. You need to warn people because if you're treating them about psychological distress or depression, and then you prescribe a medication that could really interfere with their relationship with their spouse or their partner around their sexual connection. That could create a whole host of additional problems in that person's life. I'm just, I'm just really floored at, at this woman shrink for not 
getting out in front of this. That this woman had to go online or read the side of the box to discover what the problem was with her inability to climax and lack of interest in sex. Really shocked. So what does she do? What would your recommendation be to her? What does she do now? That she's on these meds. She doesn't want to get off these meds because they're helping her uh, with the depression, but they're really hurting her sexually. What should she do? I have a sexplanations episode that I really love called Dealing with Sexual Side Effects. It's all about this. Um, I suggest that people learn why the med works for them, how it serves them so that they can understand the chemistry of their bodies and then hopefully push forward to an answer and how that affects their sexuality. And then I also absolutely recommend that they are talking with their health provider to say, I don't want it to be either my emotional health, mental health, or my sexual health. What is the solution for me to have both? Perhaps another medication, mixing it up, lowering the dose. These are options, correct? Yeah. And right now there's this amazing test called pharmacogenetic testing, which allows the person in the lab to swab the cheek and actually find medications that will target what is going on. So they don't have to trial and error a bunch of meds and deal with all the side effects here or here or not here. Instead, they can really go for the ones that they know are going to work for the person and then look at what the sexual side effects are and work on either treating those or mitigating them. So caller, you need to ask your shrink to watch Dr. Lindsay Doe's Sexplanations episode about sexual side effects and get up to speed. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Lindsay Doe, clinical sexologist and host of the popular and please check it out YouTube channel Sexplanations. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope you'll come back and uh, join us again. Thank you so much, Dan. Hey, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old gay man from a big city, um, and my boyfriend and I have been together for almost three years now, and we were thinking of getting engaged. Um, A couple of months ago, we decided to open our relationship after my boyfriend had asked for it. After we'd been open for about a month, uh, my boyfriend admitted to me that prior to our agreement, he had been going out and blowing guys at clubs without telling me or me knowing. something he knows that would have shredded me if I had known it earlier. Um, I was pissed, but I guess I'm not such a jealous person that I felt a need to DTMFA. However, um, I recently overheard him tell a friend that he ended up hooking up with a coked up stranger at a club and that they had unprotected anal sex. Um, When I confronted him, he admitted it. Um, and needless to say, my boyfriend spent the next day at the clinic um, getting put on PEP. Um, so one of our agreements in opening the relationship um, was that we would not have unprotected anal sex with others to reduce the risk of STI transmission, uh, both for ourselves and each other. Um, he says this is just impossible for him to do, and this is just who he is, whatever the fuck that means. Um, I told him this was essential for me and that I have a difficulty foreseeing our relationship continuing without an agreement be safe. Um, But then, even if he agreed after his earlier betrayals, I'm not totally sure he could keep his promise. Um, He wants to try to go to counseling and work things out. And I also would hate to just kind of throw our relationship away after after this many years. I just, I don't know, Dan, is it just time to dump the motherfucker already? You didn't throw this relationship away. He did. It is absolutely time to dump this motherfucker already. D-T-M-F-A. 
someone that you can't trust out of your sight is not someone that you should become engaged to or marry or create a life with. Yes, long-term relationship, there will be betrayals. Forgiveness will need to be applied liberally like a salve every once in a while to keep the relationship going. But asking to open the relationship after he'd already opened it unilaterally without telling you if maybe it was just blowjobs and handjobs and he wanted to get right with God by officially opening the relationship. Okay, maybe, but then to find out that he went out and got coked up with a stranger or found a coked up stranger and had bareback sex, unprotected anal intercourse after explicitly agreeing to not do that, to protect you. Yeah, no, that's two strikes that you're going to need to round up to three. D-T-M-F the fuck A. Hi, Dan. I am a 25-year-old bisexual woman living in the Bay Area. And something that just has been bothering me, like, ever since I started having sex, is the fact that when I give a dude, like, a blowjob, or, like, I'm having, like, sex with a dude and like he like pushes my head down to do that or something like I always like I'm like okay yeah this is gonna come back around during like this you know exchange with each other and it never does and it's so weird like I just don't understand like I feel like it should go both ways and now I've started now that I'm like feel sure about that I started to like bring it up and, and then it just kind of ruins things. And, um, it's just confusing. Like, isn't it the same thing to like go down on dude to to go down on a girl? It's the same thing. It's not like one is more gross than the other. Like, I don't understand. Like, how do you deal with that? Like, I like giving blowjobs. Then I get pissed because it don't come back around and guys aren't, don't, they don't seem to be very receptive to it and they don't like straight or even bisexual dudes that I have sex with don't even necessarily return the favor and it's fucking annoying. What do I do? Oral comes standard. Any model that arrives without oral should be immediately returned to the lot. Wrote that in Savage Love a million years ago. And that has been misinterpreted in some quarters of Tumblr land as me ordering women to go down on men. But it applies to men and women equally. Men got to go down on girls. Now, some people out there don't like oral sex. They don't want it performed upon them. They don't want to perform it. That can be a price of admission that your partner can choose to pay. If being with you means no oral, someone can opt into that kind of deprivation, but it has to be opt in. So yeah, I believe oral comes standard. Any model that arrives without it should be returned to the lot. These guys who are arriving in your bed without oral for you, return them to the lot, communicate to them that you going down on them as you have been communicating to them is conditional upon them going down on you. Oral for you is a two way street and they got to drive up and down that street too, or you are not bobbing up and down on their dicks. Repeat as necessary until you are in bed with a dude who will eat your pussy. And they are out there. There are lots of guys out there who love to eat pussy. And I know this because I get calls and letters from guys who are with women who don't want them to eat their pussies. 
because they're uncomfortable with it or some previous shitty boyfriend or shitty husband shamed them about it and they have anxiety. Whatever the reason, I hear all the time from guys who are dying to eat pussy who are with women who will not let them go find some of those guys. They're out there. Hi, Dan. My name is Steve. I'm a 40-something-year-old male, uh, straight male in the Midwest. And um, thanks to your advice and help, I've managed to survive and come out healthier after a couple of codependent relationships. I've now been poly for a couple of years. About seven months ago, I met this really amazing woman, and she's married to another man, and they're both also poly, and things have been going great. You know, as we started out, uh, because they were re-entering things, I, uh, you know, where there were some boundaries that we, you know, that she and I uh, respected, and you know, kind of were careful about his feelings in particular, um, even though she and I were falling pretty hard for each other. Flash forward to now, and it's starting to sound more and more like his stuff is of the more manipulative variety than I would care for. That he will break the boundaries that are supposed to be on his side and then apologize profusely or that he'll blow up over something and then get really upset and then apologize about it later. I've noticed that both she and I are starting to do the walk around on eggshells thing. And it's a very, very familiar feeling. Uh, for a while, I've been able to kind of write this off as her circus and her monkeys. You know, I'm not married to him. And that's one thing. But it's starting to affect how far and where her and my relationship goes. And I'm having a harder and harder time dealing with that. I'm not going to break up with her. Uh, it's worth it. She's really amazing. And this is a price of admission that I'll pay. I guess I'm just trying to figure out how I can help myself not fall back into the same patterns that, or even start looking for them if maybe they're not there, you know, that maybe I'm just seeing things and that I'm imposing a pattern that doesn't actually exist. You're dating a woman, poly relationship, and her husband is a manipulative shit and is complicating your relationship. You say that that's a price of admission that you're willing to pay. The flip side of that, you pay the price of admission and then you stop bitching about it. You pay the price of admission, you ride the ride, you don't complain on the ride the whole time that the ticket was 10 bucks. You just buckle up and enjoy the roller coaster. You don't bitch and bitch and bitch and bitch. The problem here though, that's what I do about cleaning up after my husband. He is kind of messy, doesn't see things once he puts them down. So I move through the house like an octopus, putting things away, putting lids on mayonnaise, putting it back in the fridge, whatever it is. And I don't complain to him endlessly about it. Although he hears about it every time I talk about it on the podcast and then he gets upset, but I don't complain directly to him about it. And that's possible for me to pay that price of admission and not to bitch about it. The problem here, though, is you're going to pay this price of admission. You're going to put up with her husband, but you're going to have to keep paying this price of admission. And if your girlfriend's husband doesn't like you or really doesn't like being poly and wants you gone, he's going to continue to up the price. He's going to get shittier and shittier. And the price you're paying is going to get steeper and steeper. 
And then what happens? As he ups the price and ups the price and ups the price, eventually you're going to walk, probably you're going to walk, or she's going to leave him for you. That is the unlikelier scenario by far. So go for it. Pay the price of admission. Keep your eyes open, though. Don't be the frog in the frying pan that as it heats up doesn't think to jump out. If the price gets steeper and steeper, if you're paying more and more, if you can't get to the point where you don't bitch about it anymore, and the way you get to that point of not bitching about it is whatever it is, that price that you paid is the same. My husband is as messy as he's ever been. Not messier, not increasingly messy, just his usual forgets to put the mayonnaise away self, and I put it away. Price submission paid, no bitching done. But he doesn't get worse. He doesn't throw the jar of mayonnaise against the wall, so I have to scrape it off the tile. If in this case it gets worse and worse, eventually it'll become a price you're unwilling to pay, and you're going to have to get off this ride. Hi, Dan. I am a 25-year-old female living in the Bay Area. I'm calling actually about a friend. He's a really close friend of mine, and he's been going through some shit. Um, basically, an ex had some new pictures of him and has been sending them to his family um, pretty relentlessly somehow, basically stalking him, getting phone numbers of people that she can use to extort him with these photos. Um, he's talked recently about having suicidal thoughts. It's just breaking my heart because, I mean, obviously this is a totally fucked situation and I know you've given a lot of good advice to people in the past who've been targeted by revenge porn and I think it's also just a good reminder that this happens to straight men as well. Um, We talk a lot about, I think, women being victims of this and uh, yeah, so I just was hoping you could give some insight onto as to what he should do um, and maybe just talk a little bit about anything I could say to him to make him feel better because I'm obviously really worried about him. Thanks. I'm really sorry that your friend is going through this and your point is apt. It's not just women who are subjected to this kind of brutalization who are the victims of revenge porn. It is also often men. Uh, I don't, I think it's less often men, but often men as well. And your friend is a victim and he needs to understand that. And I'm sure that you've communicated that to him. If revenge porn is a crime in the state where you live and this is ongoing, even if it wasn't ongoing, he should file charges against this woman, get a restraining order against this woman. Also, since he's expressed to you suicidal thoughts in the wake of this humiliating campaign being waged against him, I think you need to get in front of that. And I think there are two ways to do that. You help him write an email to everyone that he's in contact with explaining what's going on. And also he has nothing to be ashamed of that people exchange intimate photographs all the time, all sorts of people that sharing these photographs with her uh, wasn't the only mistake was a misplacement of trust as Dylan Sprouse so brilliantly put it when his photos were circulated online. And he's not the bad guy here. He's the victim here. And he can communicate to people, if you see emails from this address, if you see emails with this kind of subject line, because typically people who engage in this sort of shitty behavior have a pattern. They use certain email address, they use a certain email address, they use a certain set of email addresses, and there's some pattern in their subject lines to get people to open the emails. And if he can say to people, you know, if you get an email from this address, if you get an email with this subject line, please for my sake and for your sake, because you don't want to be burdened with these mental images, delete it without opening it. 
also, since you know that he's been so devastated by this, that he's feeling suicidal, he's feeling suicidal because he believes that in the eyes of the people that she's reached out to, he's likely feeling suicidal because he believes that the people that she has shared these photographs with to wound him, think less of him now than they did before. And you can get together a small group of people, family, friends, not to humiliate him, but to support him, get these people to communicate to him that they understand this is very painful for him, that they think no less of him, that they know that he is the victim here, that they know that people commonly share these kinds of photographs with their lovers these days. And the person who is doing something wrong, the person who is monstrous, the person who is shameful in this equation is this ex of his and not him. And if he hears that from enough people, maybe he will believe it. I'm sorry your friend is going through this. Please, if there are revenge porn laws on the books in the state or the province where you live, where he lives, avail yourself of that legal redress and file charges. I have a new boyfriend since July, and I am worried about his cat germs. In my several decades, I have never lived with cats. He has two very nice cats. He loves them very, very much, pets them frequently, lets them lick his nose and chew his mustache, and he is not in the habit of washing his hands, nose, or a mustache before we have sex. He doesn't wash his hands before preparing preparing food either. When I ask him to wash, he acts like I am weird. He has teased me before about being overly hygienic, calling me monk and OCD. So I hesitate a lot to allow his hands and or face on my vulva or in my vagina, and I'm kind of squiggy to kiss him sometimes. Additionally, kitty litter gets tracked all over the house, including into the bed. At first, I was getting nasty bug bites. Boyfriend started changing the sheets every time I visited. Now he more often vacuums them. He says there cannot be fleas because his cats are always indoors. My question, please tell me, am I overreacting? Are there diseases I could contract from his cat's secretions and excretions indirectly applied to my mucous membranes? Here's what you shouldn't do. Here's what will make it worse. Googling, as I just did, cats, humans, disease. Because you will end up, perhaps as I ended up, at a website, the Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine website, that hosts an extensive list of all of the different diseases and viruses and bacteria and fungi that can pass from cats to humans. Now, how common is it for a disease to pass from cat to human. It is not very common when you consider the millions and millions, the tens of millions of people in the United States who live with cats without dropping dead of bacterial, fungal, viral infections passed on to them by their cats. So we can infer that this is rare but not impossible because if it was impossible, Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine wouldn't have this terrifyingly long list of all the ways your boyfriend's cat is going to kill your vulva. Here's my suggestion for you. You compromise. Well, my first suggestion would, if you're this paranoid about cats and your immune system is really this delicate, not to date somebody who owns cats. Find a cat-free boyfriend. They're actually not that hard to find. If you were a lesbian and you were this freaked out by cats, you would have a much harder hoe to row. 
but that you're a straight woman and you're not into cats, easier to find a guy who's not that into cats. If you can't let go of this guy, you're just going to have to look at the odds, calm the fuck down, and convince this guy that he needs to practice better personal hygiene. It is not unreasonable to ask somebody to wash their hands before they stick them inside you. It is not unreasonable to ask someone to wash up before they prepare food. Regardless of the cat thing, you're probably more at risk of the flu virus or E. coli, not from the cats, than you are of cat mushroom fungus disease or whatever the fuck it is that you're worried about. Much more at risk of just everyday regular crap on people's hands and faces. And you have to convince your boyfriend to practice better household hygiene? That there is cat litter tracked into his bed? Yeah, no, gross, ick, ugh. That he is vacuuming his bed when you're coming over rather than changing the sheets? Unacceptable. He needs to have some boundaries with his pussies if he wants free and open access to your pussy. And that includes sweeping, vacuuming on the regular, and no cats in the bed, period, at all, ever again. Cats don't have to be in his bed. Ew, uck. Even if there was no kitty litter tracked into the bed, just the dander, just the cat hair. Ew, ick, yuck. Black. You have to meet in the middle. A little bit of a compromise. You're going to be a little bit chiller about the cats because of the odds. You're going to be a reasonable, rational person. Take the odds into consideration, the odds of you being harmed, just like you take those odds into consideration when you get in a car and drive somewhere or get out of the bathtub, which is the riskiest moment of the day in most people's houses, or get on an airplane. You're going to look at the odds and feel calmer about it. And he is going to change the sheets, sweep the floors, and wash his fucking hands and face like an adult. Hey, Dan. I'm calling in regards to episode 540 with Randy Krager about borderline personality disorder. I'm a person with BPD. That's right, a person, not a monster as Ms. Krager would like to paint me. Not once did Ms. Krager mention that BPD is often brought on by childhood trauma and sexual abuse or the fact that BPD can be effectively treated with a form of therapy called dialectical behavior therapy. No, instead, Ms. Krager chose to focus on perpetuating the harmful myths and misconceptions surrounding mental illness, further ostracizing an already marginalized community. In this day and age, there's no reason why this should continue. Mental illness is unfortunately a part of our society, and our energies would be best used focusing on the very real treatments available rather than telling people to stay away from others with mental disorders. Hi, Dan and youth. I am calling with a comment about the creepy, sexually harassing karate instructor. I think you got it right. This cannot remain a secret. There's many children who um, remain at high risk. Um, In addition to your advice, I would advise this person to call their county child protection services. Uh, A simple Google search, you'll get the number, and this will make sure that there are other people who are not involved in the administration who are also aware and um, will start some kind of investigation and also keep you anonymous, which sounds like is important to you. So please call your county child protection services. Hey, Dan, this is a comment for the caller in the last show about the swinging couple. Problem is that they're trying to do it all as a foursome. They should switch to two twosomes, go off in separate bedrooms, and I bet that's going to fix the problem. The problem with a foursome is that it gets very competitive, and you're looking at 
where are they? Are they ahead? Are they behind? Oh my God, they've switched to oral. We're still doing kissing. You know, it gets to be a big circus. If you switch to two people in two different bedrooms, then it can be intimate and you can discover what turns you on about each other. And I bet that's going to fix the problem. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number. If you have a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Be sure to listen to me, Eli Sanders, and Rich Smith blather on about politics almost every week at the Blabbermouth Podcast. Read Savage Love, my sex advice column, in Detroit's Metro Times and in other papers across the country. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Lindsay Doe of Sexplanations on Twitter at LTD. That's at E-L-L-E-T-E-E-D-E-E. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. <laughs>